Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1387, entitled Dinner Date. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Our podcast title is Panda Pod. (laughs) All right, now, I am Rob Jen. And Megan McHugh. And we are talking about turning red. Mm. Okay, look, I'm afraid it's another Disney Plus episode. <laughs> it just worked out that way. And it's a worthwhile. We, we do these things with purpose. Look, sometimes I'm actually finding these movies through an, an application that allows you to just put in any title mm. and then it will just put up where you can find them. Just watch. Uh, yes. Yes, I think. And mm. so it's really quite random in how it finds out what streaming channel it because I chose this movie, The Turning Red One, and then Megan chose the second movie, which is Fresh. Yes, indeedy. So, also on mm. Disney+. Plus. So, again, coincidence. Just Watch is fantastic for looking up where you can find things. Coincidence? Or is it? <laughs> okay, Turning Red, 2022 U.S. American CGI animated movie, Pixar, Mm -hmm. and it's distributed by uh, Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures, which is how come I guess it's on Disney+. Plus. It is directed by Dumi Shi, a Chinese-Canadian animator, Mm -hmm. director and screenwriter. Now, I have seen Shi's work before, and that was that Pixar short bow. Ah, um, mm -hmm. won an Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film. It's an allegorical about a a boy being like a steamed bun. Yeah, I think, did it show at MIF one year, maybe, I think. I remember it from a rundown that we did. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that must have helped get people's attention and get some eyes on her storytelling and help get us towards this Turning Red film, which is a really lovely little film, I think. Now, her... Movies have included that she's worked on, that is, uh, Inside Out, Incredibles 2, Toy Story 4. See that the output is all orientated towards Disney. So that's not surprising. Influences include My Neighbours, The Yamadas, and Spirited Away, amongst many other films. So you can see where they're coming from, really, for this kind of family-orientated, but with a darkness in them. So that's actually kind of a a bit of a credo for the director who wants children to be able to understand how common dark elements are in a day-to-day environment, and hopefully this will equip them with the tools that they need for the real world. So, Mm. you know, kind of like those harder-edge fairy tales like Brothers Grimm, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. This film is simplicity itself, and I've had a fair little natter here. Can you outline the plot for this one for us? Certainly. So this film's set in Canada and we have quite a few flags that we're operating inside Toronto because they mentioned it a few times. We've got Canadian flags everywhere. Someone calls someone a hoser. But um, it's a really great setting and the whole point is that they really want to highlight this kind of immigrant experience. So we follow May, uh, also known as Maylin Lee, 
So she's 13, she's Chinese Canadian, and she works after school helping out at her family temple. And she's obviously very close with her family. And the center of the film is really her relationship with her mother, Ming. Now, she's at a very sensitive age where lots of different things are happening to her and she's changing and she's discovering things. And she's also trying to deal with that disconnect between, you know, Canadian culture and life and just living as someone with two cultures to interweave together and, you know, her friends at school, which are very multicultural. I think this is a really diverse film, but it's very much centered around May's experience with trying to think through her Chinese heritage, as well as the other things she wants to do that are maybe a bit more like Canadian and things teenage girls want to do. Now, this is all, of course, very much complicated by the fact there is a family Emily, I'm going to say blessing. <laughs> Some might say curse. And I don't think this is a spoiler because this is kind of in the pitch for the movie where May and members of the family, her mother and her ancestors before her are imbued with the spirit of the red panda. And more than just a spirit, it does manifest in her transforming into said red panda of a very large size, larger than normal red panda size. This happens at the most inopportune moments when she's having a really emotional time, emotional reaction, that kind of thing. So it's about her struggle with this emerging beast inside her and how she can either live with that or actually sort of harness that spirit and suppress it in a way. So it's got a lot of interesting tropes around what you do with, yeah, that darker side of you. So very much about May's experience as a teenager or going into teenagedom and also very strongly centered around the family and her relationship with her mother. Yeah, that's a good summation. I felt that we get given this story quite quickly right Mm. up front in the film. You know, we really don't have too much trouble sort of getting into the whole pacing of it. And all of those elements are stories that we've heard so many times before in animated films. Mm -hmm. No doubt we will get a rerun of that when we get into uh, Disney's uh, Ms. Marvel. I can just see the whole thing echoing through that Mm. too. In fact, I actually think of uh, Turning Red as a bit of a superpower. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And not just uh, my neighbour, Toronto. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Let's get into the soundtrack of this film Mm. just to start off with. It's by our old friend. How old a friend has he been? (laughs) Because we know him mostly from The Mandalorian Mm -hmm. and the Book of Boba Fett from those soundtracks. Ludwig Goransson's Turning Panda (laughs) from the (laughs) Turning Red soundtrack. He's so cute, that panda. (laughs) Hi, this is Michael Palin, and right now you are lucky enough to be listening to 102.7 3RRR-FM. Turning Panda, (laughs) Ludwig Goransson, from the soundtrack album of the film of Turning Red, Mm -hmm. which alludes to the main character's (laughs) special ability of being able to turn into a fairly large red panda. Yes, a very uh, clumsy size. The poor thing, like just too big for doorways, too big for rooms. Yes, definitely highlights kind of the awkwardness that's meant to, you know, this is meant to represent as well, the unwieldiness of of her panda form. 
Well, let's go there. Mm. The main theme of this story. Mm-hmm. Now, we know that the director, Dumi Shi, has a fondness for creating allegories. Mm-hmm. And the superpower of the main character here, being able to turn into a giant panda, is an allegory for menstruation. Mm-hmm. Turning red. Oh, that's so clever. (laughs) (laughs) What did they call it in the idiom of the Chinese culture? The red peony. Yes, the blossoming, yes. the blossoming, yeah. (laughs) I sat down afterwards and I thought about this a bit. I realised we actually don't know if the 13-year-old in the story actually is having a period. It's true. It's not underlined in the story itself, but the allegory is there, and I think it's a perfectly valid way of presenting this because this is probably the very first animated movie I've ever seen where you actually see a pile of sanitary products and they're listed and named Mm -hmm. in the film. Mm -hmm. I mean, this seems like something that should be no big deal, just a fact of life, Mm. and yet this film has caused a lot of controversy. Like you rarely see that acknowledgement of something that is extremely common. And something called out so explicitly in the scene. And it's a really lovely scene where the mother is supporting her when she, you know, there's a bit of a misunderstanding. And I think the fact that it is this big shock that this would be portrayed in a film, it's like, we'll talk about the second movie we're going to discuss today. We're happy to see those kinds of things play out on screen. But a a mother (laughs) gives a daughter a sanitary pad. Oh, Let's get up in arms. It's shock, horror. And on Disney. Yeah. There's a a cultural collision there. (laughs) Well, this is the channel that we turn to for family friendly entertainment. We don't have to explain concepts like menstruation or Toronto (laughs) to children, you know. It's so outdated. And I think Disney is notorious for being a bit hesitant to push any boundaries. If you can even consider this pushing boundaries, but, you know, they keep everything very sanitised. So it's interesting. (laughs) In context, that's perfect comedy. Yeah, yeah. With that aspect in mind, that is the driving force of this film in a lot of ways. The panda is quite clumsy, is given to rage, clearly a whole lot of hormonal stress. Mm. That also blends in with the fact that the, the character is also a fan of a group. Yes. A, a boy band called Four Town. Yeah. A beautiful melding, I think, of your NSYNC Backstreet Boys era boy band pop, but also they've incorporated more elements of, you know, as a BTS fan myself, like Korean, like K-pop as well. There's a member in the band called Young, and I think he's a bit of a mishmash of like a BTS type character. And I think they're having a lot of fun with that, similar to Josie and the Pussycats, how they had their boy band that was featured. And yes, May is a very big fan of Four Town and it's mm-hmm. life or death really that she gets to see them when they come to her city. And I think that's a really nice nice way of showing, yeah, the fandom and the passion that you can have for, for these things. And she just wants to be free and unleash these things. And I think it's interesting where they also, as well as it being the puberty allegory it's about the kind of feeling of the pressure of meeting the expectations of her family and her mother and the you know expectations placed on on her as a chinese teenager yeah expectations which (laughs) are great expectations when Mm. delivered in no uncertain terms to her by her grandmother and her her mother's sisters, the aunties, yes. the inevitable <laughs> Chinese aunties. So good when they roll up. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like a push, isn't it, or some sort of game. Yeah, there's a real like introduction shot. They get their own great reveal, and yeah, there's a lot of fun being had. Uh, Rosalie Xiang plays Mei Li, mm-hmm. and she is uh, an American actress and quite charmingly an author as well, oh. which is kind of cool. She actually was chosen to be the voice actress for the character mm-hmm. as a placeholder. Oh, okay. They went on and they just said, you know what? You're the one. She's so fantastic. She's so expressive. And, I mean, that's also props to the animators too. I think it all comes together so well. She's so cute and funny and you really like her immediately. She tells you, you know, a little bit about herself at the start of the film and you're really invested in her right away. I think she's the right mix of enthusiasm and just the poor thing, you just want to give her a hug. (laughs) Well, yeah, in panda form especially because it's so cute. Yeah. (laughs) Just one of those great big plush creatures that you just want to like hug and bury your face dive in. Dive you know? into the into the panda <laughs> hug. No, so, yeah. so good. My gosh, you're going to see this character turn up at furry conventions and stuff. <laughs> Guaranteed. You know, and that will be cool. So she does a perfect job in this. Mm. You know, we are talking about Encanto level Mm-mm-mm. of nailing the character. Yeah. Yeah. And this is another aspect. Again, I'm so overwhelmed by how many essentially Western films we're seeing, animated films, which are embracing multicultural aspects. Yeah. Like films made in the Western studio system by, you know, something that's historically told the similar stories from the one perspective. And now we're getting this great mixture of other kinds of lived experiences, other people's cultural heritage displayed on screen and, you know, by people who have an authentic experience. I think, yeah, more of this, please. Mm. Well, I mean, when you think about it, probably a great deal of the animation is shopped out overseas into Asian countries and other countries as well. So it's about time there was actually some cultural recognition in the actual stories and the plot. Oh, that's my little point there. Uh, Sandra O oh plays Ming Lee. Yeah. May's mum. I love Sandra O oh, anyway, and I know she's actually Canadian herself. She's Korean-Canadian. Oh. And I didn't realise it was her and then – but she is brilliant as the mother and you just re- – she's funny. There's so many great scenes with her just doing these ridiculous, ridiculous things, but you feel for her even at the same time as you're like – oh, you're being so suffocating, but you just, she's such a great character and I think Sandra O really sells her. If I may do a little bit of a spoiler. Oh, go on. There is one one scene in the film Mm. where where Ming Lee shows up at May's school. (laughs) (laughs) And she's trying to support her daughter and she's fearsomely determined to do that. Yeah. The security guard, nothing's going to stop her from running up to her daughter's classroom and brandishing a box of sanitary products. Now, that has got to be the most embarrassing moment in parental history on the screen. It's, oh, yeah. (laughs) You just. It shouldn't be. Yeah. And that's part of what I hope this film will eventually inspire mm. more of a more of a dialogue or just an acceptance of reality and all that sort of stuff. But 
<laughs> it is a great moment, a cinematic moment. It's so well directed too, like just the comedy element. But, you know, she's doing it from this position of love, but you also like it's mortifying for May as mm. it would be. And yeah. it's just, yeah, really right away you're like, oh, okay, these are the dynamics at play. She's trying her best, but she's so out of touch with <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen her in uh, Killing Eve, but uh, she's there. Yes, she's so. fan- fabulous, fabulous. We've got, oh, yeah, because we covered Free Guy and that had Jodie Comer from Killing Eve, so there you go. Yeah. And, of course, Grey's Anatomy, I have seen her in that. <laughs> and I've heard her in She-Ra and the Princesses of Power playing the character of Caster Speller. <laughs> <laughs> Other people in this cast, like we were saying, it was a, a very multicultural cast. Mm-hmm. We've got... Matrei Ramakrishnan mm. playing Priya. Yeah. And she's an Indo Canadian girl. And she's part of like the besties, you know, yeah. the Scooby gang in this one. And she's in uh, the Netflix teen comedy series Never Have I Ever, mm-hmm. which I have actually heard of. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> a great one. Surprisingly enough. Mm. A whole group of other friends in there. They are well selected yeah. and they really do provide other facets of, I, don't know, I guess, teenage girl experience. You know, one's a bit morose, a bit of a goth. Yeah. A bit more serious. Another is absolutely fearsome. So there's this whole dynamic which I feel reflect the shards of the character. Yeah. And I think one thing that's been said a lot about the film is that it is really great for representation. Like you you see in the characters there's a wide range of like diverse culturally but there's also a scene where and it's just a little thing um a girl at the school is wearing like a patch for like a diabetes patch and a lot of people in the community of you know young people who've grown up having had a diabetes diagnosis and having to manage it and the patch is one of the things and they've just said they felt so represented just that small detail um just an acknowledgement you know that that they exist. And I think just little touches like that goes to show, I think the attention that's being paid to being like, okay, people who you haven't seen yourself represented in films or TV for a long time. We're really trying to make that change. Mm. As a a Chinese Australian, you know, actually feel seen Mm. because of this movie. Mm. I guess I identify with pandas. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Okay. Anyway, hats off to Haiyan Park. Mm -hmm. And the aforementioned Maitrey Ramakrishnan and Ava Morse for playing those besties and doing it so well. I also wanted to mention uh, Wei Ching Ho, mm. who plays Wu, May's grandmother. Yeah. A fearsome character. <laughs> and we know her as Madame Gao from the Daredevil Iron Fist and the Defenders series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think she brings a bit of that to this. <laughs> yeah, she does. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and someone who must be mentioned because this is yet another notch to his incredible belt of movies and television shows. He has played over 600 roles since, you know, he was born in 1929. American actor, producer, and director James Holm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he plays Mr. Gow. (laughs) who's kind of a shaman who appears in this film. And, look, if I were to list even some of his things, Mm. we'd be here all day. But just to go quickly, doing the voice dubbing in Godzilla King of Monsters, the title character from The Human Vapor, Lopan in the 
John Carpenter movie, Big Trouble in Little China. I have to stop because there's just too many. You know, Grandpa Wingy's going to play in the television series Gremlins. He's been everywhere. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> and here he is doing the voice in this one. Also, we've got playing a teacher at the school, uh, Sasha Royce, and he is known for playing Sam Adama in the Caprica series. Mm. And um, we've got a fairly strong voice cast mm. here, I thought. I will say too, like voice acting is an area where in the past there's been some missteps of, I mean, we've had many missteps of casting of characters of colour with, you know, white actors, but there's also been a lot of times when animated characters have been voiced by white actors because, you know, the argument I suppose is that just voice, but it seems like all of these people, they've really tried to pay attention to getting the right kind of representation inside the voice cast as well that matches up. And I think, again, another thing that shouldn't deserve a shout out, but is is actually, you know, we're not quite there yet where this isn't something to call out. Uh, no, exactly. Representation behind and in front of the camera, totally. even if it is a CGI camera yeah. in this case. <laughs> All right, let's have another track from Ludwig Göransson's soundtrack for Turning Red, and this is the aunties when they arrive. (laughs) This is Carly Chan, author of The Dark Heavens and Journey to Wudang trilogies, and you're listening to 3RRR-FM. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds like they mean business, the aunties, when they they come swaggering through the temple gate of the Lee family temple. Mm-hmm. They use that temple in this as a, a bit of a tourist attraction too. Yeah. That's kind of cool. <laughs> From the film soundtrack, Turning Red, Ludwig Göransson there, and he's done a really good job, I think, of pulling out some classical Chinese instrumentation in there, but also giving it swagger. Yeah, it's it's a nice blend, I think, which I think is is kind of the point of the film too, is have that cultural mm. element but modernise and do different things with it. Yeah. There's some great animation in this film, perfectly rendered in that Pixar way. You know that they're going to do a great job there. And the fact that the director is also into animation and, you know, it was like uh, the animation club of her school when she was growing up and, you know, you can just see how all of this blended into her progression into the art form. And, you know, there's a moment when they, they're just preparing food and it looks so epic. That scene was such a good homage, I think, obviously to some of the great cooking films of the past. But, yeah, that was so cool. I wanted a bit more cooking animation than there was actually. I was like, no, that's it, more. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and the detail on the panda, the light shining through the fur. Mm. Yeah. And when May holds her human hand up at one stage and you see light shining through the translucent skin at the edges of the hand. So perfectly realised. It's it's really beautifully done. And I think the animation style works so well. Like it's kind of a fast-paced film in a way. Like there's a lot of motion and it's quite kinetic and – yeah, you're just kind of along for, for the ride. I really liked watching the film. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, there's like the panda has wonky whiskers, you know, when you get <laughs> little that doesn't quite. Yeah. Crimped. <laughs> yeah. And there's like in the school there's chewing gum stuck to the underside of the bleachers, of course. Mm. The level of detail in this is is joyful and, and it is easily the match of a, a Miyazaki film. mm mm and that's the great thing, the fact that the Miyazaki films have inspired so much more everywhere else because you know that the director and everybody involved, they've all watched all of those films. Yeah. And it's very strongly 
you know, I feel like I am watching a Miyazaki, a Ghibli film here, that feeling to it. And so this is not just a, a tale about rebellion against parental authority. We were sort of making fun of the aunties before. There is a cleaving to that and an understanding that, that family is very important to May, mm. but it's not, she's not going to let it eclipse her own life, mm. or at least that's the journey that you know that she's going to, to go along. Yeah. I wanted to rave a little bit more about the animation. I just can't. I just keep coming back to it, like the artwork in this, like the subtle pucker of stitches in fabric. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just I'm watching that sort of stuff, and of course, there's a bamboo forest. Yeah, <laughs> that has to be. And you know they they made this thing during the pandemic, so mm. I'm watching a making of special, and it's like all Zoom meetings. So imagine trying to put all this together yeah. through that. Yeah, I guess it, it, it's probably a little bit easier to do with an animated film, or am I wrong? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe in that you wouldn't have some of the on-set difficulties necessary of, of you managing doing a scene together, uh, yeah. but I think it'd be just just the same challenges around you want people to be in the same space and feeling the same vibe and getting the same sense of things, and it'd be a bit more challenging maybe over Zoom, but... Mm. I mean, there was a lot of creative ways people got around it and still managed to push through. And, I mean, it's a beautiful film. I think, you know, they've managed to overcome that. And more props to all the films that managed to get done during that time, even with the the pivot to having to make it work within the pandemic. I thought that the other themes in this film, because there are many, yes. intergenerational trauma. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was quite quite a complicated one that wove its way through. And fandom. Oh, yeah. appreciation of what fandom is. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it was done in a really nice way. To be, I mean, the most unrealistic part was that you could ever rock up to a concert like that and just buy the ticket at the door. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, but I think it was done with respect for fandom because fandom is a big part of a lot of people's lives. And I think if it's not for bands, it could, you know, sometimes TV or stories, books and things like that. And I think it was a really nice element to have it be one of the key parts of the film in a way as well. Like this is something May's passionate about. She's passionate about her family life, but she wants to have fun with her friends. Yeah. Another aspect of the fandom for me was the uh, the very clear riffs off of manga. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, <laughs> the four-town boys, you know, they've got, some of them have got their hair over one side of their face and, you know, uh, and the insanely complicated highlights and shadows in in some of the characters' eyes. Yeah, you know, yeah, the eyes know. are actually a big part of it because the panda yeah. as well. Yeah, in, you know, this is a very a strong ma- manga trope and you see those little things that they, they try and paint everything and they had love hearts in some of these for the romantic moments. Yeah, you're so uh, you're right. Like at all of the squee moments, they had appropriate little starry eyes for all the characters. Mm, very anime. Mm. So this film definitely is for the squeamish. <laughs> <laughs> now, there is a documentary as well about this called Embracing the Panda. <laughs> it's on Disney Plus too, along with the film. So I actually found that quite good because it, you can see the director's personal journey. They pull in elements of the director's family as well to riff off of that. And it's really good just to see all of that right there on the spot. Mm. I mean, okay, this is like, you know, you can go out and get the DVD at some stage and have the same sort of thing on that too. But I like the fact that you can get these on the streaming channels, not just on Disney Plus but on the other ones oh, too. Oh, 100%. As someone who used to religiously watch director's commentaries and behind-the-scenes featurettes, I'm really pleased this content's available again. 
Hmm. Now let's have the Red Moon Ritual from Turning Red. Ludwig Goransson as the soundtrack maestro in this case. Red Moon Ritual. Just how long have we been receiving these mysterious signals from outer space? People of Earth, attention. This is a voice speaking to you from thousands of miles beyond your planet. Hi, I'm Steve Squires. I worked on the Mars Exploration Rovers, Voyager, Magellan, and Cassini space missions, and I wrote the book Roving Mars. So if anyone should understand Zero-G, think it would be me. Nah, sorry. Zero-G, science fiction and fantasy radio on 3RRR-FM. Red Moon Ritual from the soundtrack of Turning Red, animated CGI film now screening on Disney+. Plus. Ludwig Göransson is the composer of the tune there. Look, this film, I don't have any problem with it in any way, shape or form, <laughs> really. You know, it's it's like Encanto, maybe without as many songs, and, uh, you know, The Book of Life and Soul and all of the other great animated films that we've seen that are presenting a more multicultural aspect mm. to the genre and the medium. It's just great. Mm. <laughs> and I think it's also just, I mean, obviously the cultural element is important, which is why we've sort of centred that. But I also think it's just a good story. It's well made. It's fun. It's funny. So you don't have to go in being like, okay, I'm ready to learn about the cultural experience. It's like, just go in. It's a fun little, little silly myth story. It's got some beautiful themes. It is quite meaningful. But at the end of the day, it's just a, a lot of fun. And I think it's great also to actual young people to watch. I think it has some good lessons in there. And I think everything she set out to do, she's done beautifully along with mm. all of the animators and the voice cast and everyone involved in the film. It's I'm probably with you. Like I really enjoyed it. I can't find anything that I would fault in it. I think it does exactly what it sets out to do and is a really lovely film experience. Mm. Yes. In the yeah, nah, maybe scale of zero g reviewing it's share i'm pretty happy with this one Mm. turning red (laughs) all right well we'll close that particular section of the show today (laughs) and i think we will have another track to prepare the way Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes we're going to put a hard stop on that because we're taking a firm left turn with our next film so we'll have one of four towns hits which is the fictional band, although it's filled with real musicians and singers and so on, doing the voice acting for it. And this is from the film Turning Red. You know what's up. This is George Romero, and I wouldn't be caught dead listening to Zero G on 3RRR-FM. You know what's up. <laughs> <laughs> Four Town from the soundtrack of 
Turning Red, Ludwig Göransson, the composer, although no, I think No, this the... one was written by Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell. Yeah, so they wrote a bunch of the songs for Four Town, the fake band, and, yeah, they wrote One True Love, Nobody Like You, and You Know What's Up, and they're like a very well-known, well, yeah, obviously Billie Eilish is very well-known, songwriting duo. So they were brought on board and were into the project, so that's pretty great. Now, I just wanted to warn listeners, if you've been listening to us talk about the delightful animated film Turning Red, that we are now going to go completely in the opposite direction and go into a horror movie, which is a horror comedy movie, technically speaking. (laughs) 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 And... It also happens to be on Disney+. Plus. There's been a bit of controversy over Disney+, Plus lately, because they've assimilated the Marvel Netflix mm. series, yes. including the extremely violent Daredevil and Punisher. Mm-hmm. They're saying, it's on Disney+, Plus. this is a family-friendly show. Well, they ain't seen nothing yet. Where do they get a load of this? <laughs> yes, I pitched this to Rob. I said, Rob, I've got something that I think we should watch <laughs> for the show. And so keen to hear what you thought, Rob. So it's called Fresh. It's the debut film of Mimi Cave, the director. She has a background in music videos and commercials and so on. So this is her first feature. It's a screenplay by Lauren Kahn. And when Mimi read the screenplay, she said it scared her. I won't say the exact quote, but yeah, she said it very scared the, you know, stuff out of her and it is a horror it's kind of a thriller and yes there are comedy elements as well and it's pretty much uh, a bit of an allegory for modern dating so kind of about trust and you know who you are in a relationship and being consumed by relationships and the (laughs) peril. thought you'd like that Rob and the perils of modern dating meeting the wrong person but taken to the absolute extreme so I'll lay out our setup and then we might go into a little bit more detail we're following Noah so Noah is navigating online dating uh, but the men she meets are very unimpressive I'd say almost offensive <laughs> there's a very particular bad date that they show in the film so she grows to hate the process of dating thanks to a string of bad dates that she's been on until one night she's shopping in the produce section and she has a bit of a meet cute with Steve, a handsome doctor. And he asks for her number and, you know, it's kind of meeting the old fashioned way. And she decides to give it a go. They have a drink and hit it off. And he's very charming and charismatic and things seem to be going really well until she accepts an invite to go on a weekend away with Steve. (laughs) (laughs) And then our movie really kicks in. So it starts out quite innocuous and it's quite a moody but clever take on dating and you get lulled into this sense of, oh, where's this movie going? And then about 30 minutes in, the film really announces it's starting with its opening credits kicking off at the 30-minute mark and things really take quite a turn for the worse for poor Noah. And... The film really centers on the two leads and it's very much reliant on their chemistry, which I will say is fantastic, I thought, and takes place in a limited number of locations. And so Noah is played by Daisy Edgar-Jones and I think she does a really great job of selling just the sinking dread that you would feel when she her situation is revealed. And Sebastian Stan plays Steve, the doctor that she meets. I've actually seen Daisy Jessica Edgar Jones recently in the War of the Worlds TV series opposite Gabrielle Byrne. Oh, 
I didn't know she was in that. She's fantastic. Mm. I mean, she really shot to fame in Normal People, which was based on the novel she was in that. And she's also in another upcoming novel adaptation, but I hadn't really seen her in much. And I thought she was really spectacular in this. And Sebastian, we know and love him, of course, from his work in the Marvel Universe. But I've also, I enjoyed his work in like I, Tonya and things like that as well. And it's nice to see him doing something a bit different. And he's really doing the kind of Ted Bundy thing here where he's sinister but charming. And then there's a smattering of side characters. But I think for the interest of time, I think it's fair to say the the movie's really revolving around this pair. So I personally absolutely loved the film and I thought about it a lot after. Now it is a bit of a warning. There's some disgusting content and concepts. So it's not like torture porn or anything. It's not like saw. It's more of a conceptual thing. Oh, well, actually, no, Rob, you've made a face and you've made me rethink my comment. No, there is some graphic, there is some graphic content. I take back my comment, but it's all very much done with this underlying kind of I don't know if you'd say comedy, but kind of the tone. She walks a very, very fine line with the tone, which is this kind of incredulous comedy of you're like, what on earth is going on? But there's thrills, so it's very tense and engaging as well. It's kind of a bit get out if you enjoyed get out and some of the themes of like a promising young woman as well. And it's, yeah, I think the key takeaway is that modern women can survive a lot and um, (laughs) do what they got to do, so to speak. (laughs) This is probably the good juncture for me to take a pause because I've talked a lot. Rob, you didn't know much going into this. What did you think? No, but I kind of gathered from the title Mm. because it's called Fresh. Yeah. It's a horror movie and, you know, they play a bit coy with it in the trailer and stuff, but I'm going to let you know if you'd rather not know what the main <laughs> the main event of this film is, then you can turn off now. You know, look, if you've seen Eating Roll or Dumplings or even Sweeney Todd, this is what the menu holds for you on yes. this film. And it's... I can't say it's done in all the best possible taste. (laughs) (laughs) It is stomach churning. There's a deliberate scene after the big reveal where she wants you to be like overwhelmed by how far she's pushing this boundary. Yeah. Yeah. And also has a bit of a feeling of a film called Boxing Helena too. I felt Mm -hmm. a little bit like that too. Um, Look, Seb is as usual, quite, Engaging, which is the evil trick that they play on you in this film. Really. You know exactly why Noah fell for it. I would go to a random cabin with this man. He is, you know, smart, classy, switched on, good banter. Of course I'd go. Who and, of course, he's a, a doctor. Yes. Well. Yes. One of a series of mad doctors. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're not too far from human centipede country here, I think. And, you know, he, as you're saying, the chemistry between him and, and Daisy mm. Jessica Edgar-Jones is fine, mm. you know, which is even more evil when you think yes. about it. <laughs> I think it's fairly spot on in what it's trying to achieve. And I felt that it was uh, quite different in its approach from male-directed horror movies, yes. let's be honest. Mm. You know, there is a definite feeling of something else going on here more than usual, and I, I like that. I appreciated that. And I also think it's terribly sick and twisted. <laughs> oh, no, Rob, I've, that is a lot coming from, from you. 
<laughs> but that's okay. This is what it's a horror film. Mm. It's it's what it says on the label. You know? Yeah. It's it is deliberately pushing boundaries, I think. And I think, you know, and I agree with what you said about it being directed by a woman. I mean, I've been raised on patriarchal content my whole life and I started making an assumption about the resolution and I was like, oh, you know, blah, blah, it's okay, this, this, that and the other. And then afterwards I had a good hard look at why I have such an ingrained like Prince Charming complex. And I was like, no, Megan, you've sold, you sold characters short. You've sold women short. And why did you believe that, you know, they need this person? So Mm, mm. I thought that was an interesting part of the film too, where it's, it's empowering in a way. (laughs) There's also some fairly unsubtle commentary about uh, society mm. and you know rich people's places in that society and you know nothing that we haven't seen before but always a point worth making mm-hmm. probably make me look at some of the oligarchs in a different light <laughs> well i mean Actually, squid game probably not <laughs> <laughs> yes nothing much is going to change in our opinions but like squid game had a similar vibe you know like this idea of the the extremes the rich will go to the things they'll pay to see and so on and i think I mean, I think that's the thing. There's not necessarily anything new here, but I did think the execution, like the cinematography, I think it looks amazing. Nice. The <laughs> the filmmaking is so fresh. But, um, and I also loved, you know, similar to Parasite, like the house. I also liked this use of location and the use of the house in this film as well. And it's quite a key setting. And I, I think everything really came together and it's very much anchored by that acting. And I think Daisy Edgar Jones deserves a lot of props for, like I felt like there's plenty of scenes where I really empathised with that character and I felt what she was feeling and that's quite a, like Mm. that's the directing and the acting coming together in a way that's like, gosh, how do we get in these situations? And, yeah. There were some moments, moments in it that I felt were really well turned for a horror thriller type film. Mm. There's a lot of existential dread mm, mm-hmm. as you wonder what's in the box yes what's in the bag yes. you know? and will there be something that you really don't want to see and they play a lot of games with that you know they do they know exactly what you're thinking and those lingering sh- i mean you'll never look at a meatball the same <laughs> the lingering shots and so on it it does mm. it gets in your head and i think it's it's quite fine filmmaking in that way that it's psychological and you're right it is disgusting it could have been just out and out foul and it is foul but it's also makes you think that's what I think I like about the film is that I think she's done it in a quite accomplished way something that in other hands might have been too gratuitous is the right of mount gratuitous I think mm. and I think Seb Stan plays up to the <laughs> the chillingly macabre comedy aspect of the thing by going over the top in a lot of scenes. Absolutely. And, you know, and he just looks like he's having some kind of wicked fun with this. Oh, gosh. And you're like, God, imagine being that person. And and Ugh. there was definitely some things at the end where I still had some questions about other certain characters' motivations and so on, and it, yeah. it did leave me thinking, and, and I respected that about the movie. Um, 
Yeah. So, and, and soundtrack is great. And I think that also sold it to me too. There's use of music is spot on. I thought. Yeah. It almost makes me wonder, is this almost like silence of the lambs in some ways, this film has just occurred to me, mm, you know, yeah. like, like a slice of the long <laughs> career of Dr. Hannibal Lecter, you know, yeah. this particular stage in his career, he was doing this. You could see that. Totally. Yeah. Um, All right. <laughs> on that note, yeah. Well, so, I mean, what's your, my, I'm a yeah, but it's a film that speaks to me and I think it's for yeah. me in a way. But what's your thoughts, Rob? As this type of horror movie goes, probably, yeah. I'm not so much for these ones that don't really have some kind of extra genre element in them, an extra ingredient of science fiction or or fantasy or supernatural or something like that. So it's a little bit confronting for me. That's why I like the ones that are more way out. Yes. But it's very well made and the scares are in the right place and it's quite disgusting. A good use of pop culture music as well too. So for a directorial uh, feature debut for Mimi Cave, Mm. I think it's a pretty damn good film. Nice. In terms of that. Disney Plus, screaming at the moment. Fresh. And that's about it for Zero G for today and we're going to go out with a track that's included in that film Mm. and let Megan introduce that. Oh, yes. So this is Heads Will Roll by the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's classic track, beautiful use in the film and the trailer too. So, yeah, Mm. that's it for today. All right. So until next week, guess who's coming to dinner? And I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And thank you, Megan, and thank you, Kayla Larson, our podcaster. Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.